I am not a fan. <laughs> you know what? That's so funny. This is my <laughs> problem. That would, not, that would not be the first time that's been said in here. Yeah. 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 But you, you know, you sort of grow. You're like a, a billion people that love them can't all be wrong. So I've right. got to find out what I'm missing. Right. And so you dip your toe in the water, and I can kind of get there. Science with music. Ready. One, two, three, dance. podcast where I sit down each week with a special guest and we deep dive into the record they cannot stop hitting play on. A quick little reminder, guys, we are on Patreon. You can go and subscribe and gain access to our entire first season right at your fingertips. You also gain a backstage pass to our after show, the B-side episodes hosted by our very own TV head, Jimmy. You won't want to miss out on that and you get your custom sticker. Let everyone know that you're tuned into the hippest pod around. So today we have a very special guest, uh, the, I'm so sorry, a very special guest, I'm so sorry, today we have a very special guest with us today, Johnny Black from The Eagle, I just did a little bit of a blank there, I'm so sorry, hello it's Johnny. Right. Hello, it's great to be here. Yeah, um, so tell us a little bit about you, how long have you been with The Eagle? I've been with The Eagle for about uh, 16 years. And uh, doing radio in general for about 25 years. That's great. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, what record do you have for us today? I wanted to uh, talk about the record I Can't Stop Listening to, uh, Exile on Main Street, the Rolling Stones. Such a good one. Yeah. It is such a good one. Um, okay, so for our listeners out there that aren't uh, quite familiar, the Rolling Stones was a London-based band formed in 1962 by Brian Jones, who was the driving force behind the band's early sound. After Jones struggled with long-term addiction, lead singer Mick Jagger and lead guitarist Keith Richards took over creative control and kind of removed him from the band completely in 1968 during the making of the album Let It Bleed. Weeks later, Jones ultimately met his death of accidental drowning, becoming one of the first to join the infamous 27 Club. Recording for the band's 12th album, Exile on Main Street, began in 1969 between sessions of Sticky Fingers. The main recording of the album started in 1971, while the members of the band waited out tax invasion from their homeland of England. That's it. They uh, had earned a lot of money, and the guy, Alan Klein, who managed the Beatles... And referred, you know, uh, the Beatles referred Alan Klein. You should, you know, the Rolling Stones, you should have Alan Klein manage you. And uh, he wound up stealing a whole lot of money. They had more that they owed than they had. You mm-hmm. know, they owed more than they could come up with. Right. So they decided to uh, flee the country. You know, they did a really quick 10-date tour, goodbye, and left England and moved to the south of France. And, oh, gosh, you know, i got to put up with the south of France, <laughs> you know, with, uh, with the crystal blue waters and the beaches and the nightclubs and uh, everything. And, uh, Keith bought this big house, uh, Nelcote, and most of the band moved in. Or they moved nearby, but they were in relatively easy access of this big house that had all manner of... Uh, things going on, rock and roll in the early 70s, you know, so 
they started working and putting these little fragments that they had come up with in 68 in England in 69. Uh, they were worried that some of the stuff that was on the album before Exile on Main Street, Sticky Fingers, was going to go to Alan Klein anyway. He had Abco, uh, which was their early catalog. And so all of that royalty money was going to Alan Klein. So they wanted to do something completely apart from uh, that uh, contract. So they moved to the south of France and started working on this record. Right, right. And they didn't know whenever this tax invasion took over that they didn't have as much money as they thought, right? Like they were under the impression that their contract was signed a little bit differently. So once they're looking at the fine print and they're like, oh, like we don't even own the rights to most of the music we created. Yeah. And that was a a whole can of worms on its own, just trying to kind of untangle legally out from under this manager that really had taken advantage. Yes. He spent a lot of their money and they owed more than they had pretty much. They didn't know until, uh, it was tax time that they didn't have enough money to pay their taxes. So they had to, you know, they literally hopped a plane in the middle of the night and moved their families. At that point, they had wives and kids and employees and Mm -hmm. every single member of the band came with 20 other people. Yeah. You know, so now we're looking at 60 or 70 or 100 people that all had to get up in the middle of the night and go. And some of those guys like Charlie Watts, and uh, Bill Wyman were not in the mood. <laughs> they were very pleased with their way of life as English countrymen, you know. Yeah. And so to move in the middle of the night was not making everybody happy. And they, they performed a, a, fail, a farewell concert in London before flying off to, to France. Yeah. And it was kind of a, a melancholy thing, right? Like you said, they really didn't want to go. They were feeling like they were being forced out. So they really did feel a little bit like they were being exiled. Like exiles. Like exiles, yeah. yeah. So you'd mentioned this the villa that they all kind of moved into that was owned by uh, Keith Richards. Um, most of the recordings for Exile on Main Street took place in the basement of oh, this, yeah. of this uh, villa. Yeah. It was hot. It was moldy. There it was, was water dripping off the wall. It was humid and just not ideal. But they spent hours, like 12 to, to 16 hours at a time down there. Um, and most of the recordings on the album were just kind of as as is, warts and all. Right. There really wasn't anything that was left on the, the cutting room floor, so to speak. Jagger talks about, because uh, they inevitably wound up where they always do at uh, the record plant in L.A. to polish it all up at the end, finish the album and put the overdubs and background vocals and the touch-up. They do that always in Los Angeles. And, he, you know, he said, we. they show him, there's footage of this, getting out of the car with this trunk of tapes, uh, little bits and pieces of songs all right there. And so uh, that's what they wound up with. Uh, people were starting to uh, turn up around 3 in the afternoon at the at the. Uh, castle that Keith that was built in World War One by German you know they found all kinds of bizarre memorabilia down in that sweaty basement uh, left over from the uh, troops that had been there in World War One and two and uh, would show up around three o'clock in the afternoon and work until about eight o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. you know yeah 
prime rock and roll time. Prime rock and roll. <laughs> and yeah, it was just kind of a free for all. There were people, children, wives, randos that were just living and existing, coexisting in this yeah. in this castle. Yeah. And um, they just made and played music around everyone. They were like, you know, whatever hour, any hour. I'm sure their neighbors in uh, south the south of France just absolutely loved it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people across the water could hear it. Yeah, yeah. You know? There's some footage of Anita Pallenberg, who was kind of Keith's wife at the time, saying, I went over the bay to the other side of the south of France to get away from all the noise, and I could still hear it. You yeah. know, and I don't know how people put up with it. Uh, we've got rock star neighbors. What are you going to do? What do you do? What, you are know? you going to go say something to them? You're not right. going to go say anything to no. them. You're just going to let them do their thing. Plus, they were pumping a lot of money into the local economy. Well, I mean, I'm sure nobody wanted to mess with that. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Definitely a good point. So of these two suitcases that you say that Mick Jagger came, came back to L.A. with, there was an 18-track double album, which was their first double album, if I'm not mistaken. Right, right. And so there was there was a lot of, of content here that they, they were able to create in this dungy basement. All different kinds of music too there's country stuff on there there's swampy old blues there's pop uh gospel just great great uh wide selection and that people at the time rock critics were not used to you were either a rock band or a country band or a pop band and nobody put a little bit of everything on an album like that now we do this all the time Right. But then it was kind of rare and critics didn't know what to make of it. Right. And nobody gave it a good review. And now it's considered one, one of, of the, their best. Yeah. One and of their it's best. one of rock and roll's great classic albums. But at the time, everybody thumbs down. You know, we don't know what to make of this. Is it a blues record or a gospel record or <laughs> a little bit of everything? Right. Yeah. yeah. And they had said when, when Talkeith Richards and Mick Jagger, when talking about the making of this album, that they had been heavily influenced by their, their tour through the Midwest of the United States and that honky-tonk, deep country vibe, yes. which I think you could hear in like songs on the on the album like Sweet Virginia or Loving Cup. There's yeah. the, those bluesy country vibes in there. And you had even mentioned before we started recording about Graham Parsons' influence yeah. on the album, yeah. which is really cool. I didn't, I wasn't able to dig that that piece of information up, so that was really neat to to find out from you. Those guys, uh, Keith and Graham, were really good friends, and they were both in struggling with some addiction issues. I mean, let's not uh, let's not dance around the. They were living in a bedroom <laughs> and having uh, people with black suitcases come in in the middle of the night and drop things off and go away. And that was, but during that uh, dysfunctional period of time, and I think Graham said it was about six months, mm -hmm. you know, that he was staying there. And then once they really in earnest got working on the album, Graham left. But when he was staying up in Keith's room, uh, he taught him American country mm -hmm. music. Which is great. Which right. is, when we all benefit from that with songs from the Stones catalog that had that country flavor, you wouldn't have Far Away Eyes on the Some Girls Some album girls. if Graham hadn't been staying up there and yeah. doing Lord knows what, uh, you know, with a couple of acoustics and 3.30 in the morning. Right. So. Yeah. I think most of the band, one of the things that kind of brought them together in the very beginning was their deep love for that rhythm and blues oh, yeah. sound. Yeah. And so that, that really solidified, that sound solidified their place in rock and roll history, kind of like you're saying, like that is what made the Stones the Stones. 
they throughout the album they really pay you know tribute to a lot of minorities that they like deeply admired throughout time one of the tracks is sweet black angel which is kind of a a tribute to angela davis and her work as an activist um a lot of people throughout history have looked at this little a little problematically i personally like to think that they were you know the their imitation was the purest form of flattery right and uh, I think that that rhythm and blues sound, like I said, is in the incorporated with the rock music is what made the Stones the Stones. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a problem that we're still struggling with, the big race issue in, in our country especially. And in this part of our country, in the Southwest, it's just it's, it's a difficult issue. And sometimes, especially with musicians, uh, when you're around – I mean, I played in a blues band for a long time, and we were five white guys and four black dudes, and after a while, you just, you don't even see it anymore. So when you're around other people, and you begin to talk a certain way, they get shocked, you know, if if you use a certain word or say a certain thing, uh, especially now uh, with this we think we've come a long way, but now we're watching things a little even more closely than we were, you know, 20 years ago. So the Stones, uh, especially Keith, has never, you know, a good player is a good player. Mm-hmm. And to have Jimmy Reed songs and Chuck Berry songs and Elmore James and all of that on uh, an album or, or songs that sound like uh, those guys, uh, it's just pure tribute. Right. You know? Yeah. Whereas other artists have have stolen, uh, it, it's less of a tribute and more theft. Right. Know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the Stones always turned around, and they they on the tour for Exile on Main Street, they took Stevie Wonder as the, the opening act. Right. Which is great, but that's a show I'd like to see. Right. Stevie Wonder oh opening for the Stones. Man. It would be amazing. That would definitely be amazing. Yeah. The Stones have always been an interesting band in the way that they have kind of a dark component to who they are. As a band, there's an underbelly that comes with the Stones yes. that not a whole lot of other music musical acts kind of possess. Um, through the documentary that I watched and researched for this podcast, I watched Stones in Exile. Oh, um, good for you! It was great. It was <laughs> one of the one of the better music documentaries I've actually seen. Yeah. In it, Jake Weber, who became an actor, his father was living at the villa with the Stones in the six month period. He was they a race car driver and a drug dealer. Okay, well, <laughs> those are two things that I guess come hand in hand. You really Dancing need both. With death, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of put it beautifully. Jake, Jake Weber was an eight year old boy at the time, and he he put it beautifully in the documentary. Documentary. He said, if you were living in decadence, life is always darkness. Yeah. There. With decadent, there was nothing hidden. Um, everything was out in the open. I, I think with him saying that, it's kind of like the, the drug use and that darkness that the stones do convey in the yin and the yang. Because in one breath, the stones could be almost schoolboy-like when they're out on stage. Um, and then it's like when they're coming off of the stage, there was this this other side to the coin of it that was a little darker and more, you know. Um, sinister. Sinister, for yeah. sure. You know, with the, the whole incident that happened with the Hells Angels and their association association with the Hells Angels. Brian Jones, like I said at the top of the show, accidentally passing away from an accidental uh, drowning. Yeah. And there are questions about that. Uh, kind of yeah. like what you were talking about. Like, did he drown? Or did one of those guys who was working on his house think that he was uh, 
puffed up, rich, slimy rock star and push him down into the pool with his boot because Brian was a well-known asthmatic and he had his inhaler mm-hmm. on the side of the pool and uh, apparently just didn't even use it. Why didn't he take right. a fresh puff? Why did he have an asthma attack and f- fall down to the bottom of the pool and drown? I don't know. Conspiracy. There's, there's Conspiracies. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere. If you love a good conspiracy, the Stones are a good band to, to Ooh, poke yeah. your nose into. The, the Stones were the Beatles, yeah, for sure. for sure. Yeah. There was just always this, like, dark, darker component. And I feel like that's almost what makes them more alluring. That's exactly, I mean, when I was a kid, my parents were, you know, from the Beatles fan era right and uh they thought you know that paul and they were great they were hey they had darkness of their own they just we just didn't see it as much their publicists and managers sort of kept them as the uh the 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 squeaky clean guys the pop guys and the stones were like the dirty dark rock and roll guys and really they were both both bands were as good and evil as each other but what appealed to me about the Stones is the darkness that you're talking about. Right. I mean, that's I. You know, when you're a kid, you want to rebel against your parents. I'm right. like, oh, give me those guys. They look like they're up to no good. They're the quintessential bad boys. <laughs> yes, wanna, they are. Yes, yes, and they, they are. Started a whole. You know, th- there've been thousands of great bands since then that have been sinister and dark because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. Right. <laughs> me too. Me too. Definitely. Definitely. Always been a Stones fan. One of the, I think one of the biggest components of the album is the amazing backup vocals. Oh, yeah. It's kind of the subtext in the, in the conversation with the album itself. It's kind of the foundation or the underbelly that gives the album its sound. And they put all that stuff on at the record plant after afterwards. In, they, in Los Angeles. And, yeah. yeah, and you know that part of, uh, of Stones in Exile where... Jagger says, a little bit of those girls goes a long way, you know? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, there are songs like uh, 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 Sweet Like Angel Mm -hmm. and uh, Just Want to See His Face is the one I'm thinking of that has uh, just nothing but. Right. Nothing but that backup vocal floating through the whole thing with a Hammond organ uh, for two minutes. Right. It's just a little interlude more than anything. Yeah. But that's that's just good stuff. It is. I love that. To this day, that's my favorite kind of music. Right. Yeah, me too. You know. Yeah, I definitely agree. Those those the backup backup singers don't get near as much credit as they deserve sometimes, but yeah, they 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 definitely helped carry this album. And the Stones are still touring with uh, Bernie Fowler and Lisa Fisher, who are two of the best at doing that, finding that harmony, that gospel quality and singing up and over uh, those guys, it's just, you know, I would hate to have that job. <laughs> You're backing up the Rolling Stones vocally, but but they do it. Uh, Lisa Fisher can do the intro to uh, Gimme Shelter, mm-hmm. that long, wailing, operatic note. And uh, to this day, she can do it just beautifully every night, every night, night after night, all around the world. She does that and hits it, knocks it out of the park every time, so... That's incredible. Yeah. That's so cool. I can't imagine how hard that would be to to have to back up a voice like Mick Jagger's. Yeah, come I on. I mean, yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be difficult. That would be that would be crazy. So after warrants were put out for the Stones, they kind of decided to shag ass a little bit. They headed to LA to help finish off the album. Yeah. Once they got there, they kind of realized that 
they had some lyrics for some songs, some music for some songs, but I mean, it was all over the place. Right. Mick and Keith sat down, they started writing out sentences on random strips of paper and kind of pulling them randomly to create songs, which I love. Because yeah. some of the Stone songs you listen to and you're like, ah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it sounds good. That's the William Burroughs technique of, okay. of writing. And what's the song that uh, really has that on it? Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, where they wrote down, like, finger twitching and stuff on little strips of paper and put it in a hat and then pulled it out, and that's the lyrics to the song. I mean... I mean, if it works, it works. And it worked. And it worked. It, it worked. worked. It worked nicely. No no, uh, no, problems with making the sausage there. The album was finally completed and released in May of 1972. Despite the drama around the band, <coughs> the making of the album, it is still seen as one of their best. The semi-live raw material it truly makes you feel like you're kind of a fly on the wall in this hot, moldy basement as they're creating this, this music. It sounds like you're at a dangerous party and there's a band in the next room. Just playing like playing really music. Well, yes, you know? yeah. <laughs> a really good band. Which I'm I'm a little upset I wasn't invited. Yeah. Rude. Yeah. But, you know, and it is what it is. Maybe the next one. Maybe I'll catch the next Exile for the Stones. But pure magic at the time. A perfect storm, perfect time period, perfect exactly. artists. The right things happened at the right time for the right reason, for right. the right place. It just all came together. I don't think any of them would say we knew it at the time. Although Keith has said... It felt like we were doing something that was going to last. Right. So, and I'm, I don't know if they felt that way about their last record, you know. Uh, it is what it is, but Exile definitely has something special going right. on. A lot of their albums, I mean. Um, Sticky Fingers is uh, another album I would have easily loved to have brought in and talked to. Uh, talk that, to you about that yeah. would have been fun. There's a lot of stuff on Sticky Fingers that you can see where it became what they did on Exile. Yeah. You know, okay. that, that gritty and it's very druggy. Uh, I think one of the reviews of, uh, of uh, Sticky Fingers was don't put your nose too close to the speaker. You might, you know, sniff some drugs or, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all in there. You can feel it and pretty remarkable which that was just kind of the stone style right like yeah. if, if anybody has ever um listened to or read uh, keith richard's memoir life which is incredible it's extremely long but if you ever have the uh, the chance or the opportunity definitely check it out right with some Did of the you things read it i have yes wow yes yeah, yeah that's that's yeah and you know what i was actually a little bit surprised at the things that weren't that he didn't do i mean because we always pictured the uh, image, the public image of Keith Richards is this elegantly wasted multimillionaire world traveling rock star. And he was really kind of a homebody. He liked being around the wife and kids. Mm -hmm. He really didn't do the groupie thing yeah. much. Um, and uh, of course, piles of, of drugs. Uh, right. But I was a little bit uh, happily surprised that there wasn't more of that. I thought it was just going to be a drug book. Right. And there right. has been that. But the first rock book I ever really read was called Up and Down with the Rolling Stones by a guy named Tony Sanchez. And it was just a drug book. Right. You know, but this guy's job was to go get drugs for the Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and those guys. So, of course, that's the book that's he's going to write. the only side <laughs> of it he sees, yeah. But I was 13 at the time. And, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> 
these guys are so terrible. <laughs> well, and, you know, uh, Keith Richards' book does kind of start out a little shaky there yeah. with him driving through the Midwest with... So, like, how Arkansas or something? I, and I believe him so. Him and Ronnie Wood with Yes, the... just a drugs in every yeah. crevice of the car, <laughs> including his hat. I mean, any like, it was just... place you could put drugs. Right. It was just... I was like, man, yeah, but um, it's definitely incredible. But that I think that definitely played a, a huge hand in the making of, of a lot of their music, oh, especially gosh, yeah. Exiles on yeah. Main Street. And the cover art for the for Exiles on Main Street is amazing. It's just wild. Yeah, and it's it's like I I, I don't want to call them freak show performers. I don't know what the appropriate you know politically they're like, correct. They're like uh, uh, yeah, the, the, you put a quarter in and you walk in and there's this person with a physical deformity that everybody looked at, right? That you can gawk at, and that's where our culture was at the time. Um, and there's a lot of other things. The guy with the the giant the balls, balls in his in mouth. mouth. I mean, mm-hmm. what's that? It's just weird. And uh, there's a lot of other. And I can't remember the guy's name. They talk about it in I don't Stones remember and Exile, and I but don't, he I shot a lot of it. Notes, yeah. A lot of the pictures were taken from Super 8, like home movie camera. Right. And they just clipped the, the pictures off. Right. And made. Uh, and then some of it is occasionally there's there's one of the Stones over there. And there's, hey, there's Charlie Watts walking with these people. And. Uh, so they managed to get the band in there, but they're like an afterthought. Right. Yeah. It's not the uh, album cover that you're used to seeing with the big eight by ten glossy of bands with lots of makeup on. And, right. You know. <laughs> yeah. There's not. It's not really polished. But if you think about it, it is really poetic in a way of like relating yourself to people that would be seen as quote unquote misfits or exiles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a really cool concept. I don't believe I've seen anything else like it, but I, I could be wrong. The album, the cover, the fact that it's a double album, the way that it was made, the history behind it. It's just, it was a, a great, great pick, Johnny. It's a great record. It's a great record. Yeah, And if sure. you haven't heard it or if it's been a while since you've heard it, it's everywhere. There's no place, none of the music streaming services don't have it. They all have it. So listen to it again and then listen to it again. Uh I've probably heard it a thousand times, and uh, I'll listen to it today. Yeah. And like between here and going to work, I'll have it. Have it blaring. Yeah, yeah. I Here's what I want to do. I want to go back now that you've said that and listen to Sticky Fingers and hear kind of how there is interludes for Exiles on Main Street in Sticky Fingers. Because yeah. I hadn't I hadn't ever put that. I mean, I obviously knew that they started kind of the process of making the album through recording Sticky Fingers, but I didn't ever put that together. So now I want to do that. Yeah. So do that. Listen to those two albums Gosh. and then um, let us know. Tell yeah. us what you think. Yeah. For sure. This is this has been great. I've had so much fun. Oh, uh, good. Thank you so much for being on, Johnny. And I'm Absolutely. I'm so sorry that I I had a, a mental brain fart at the Are beginning of the Are you kidding me? That's show. what – he'll fix that. Well, you know, <laughs> he probably won't because he likes to tell me that it is a human reaction and I need to uh, I need to be accustomed with my humanness. I'll tell you this. On Exile on Main Street, they didn't fix everything. Right, right. Nothing was left on the cutting room floor. So maybe and just in honor of an uh, Exiles in the Stones, we will leave in me completely butchering one of my most exciting guests' name at the very top of the show. And you guys will feel human the next time you do something like that. There hopefully. you go. Um, Johnny, where can we find you on social? Um, well, I've got the uh, 
I've got a Facebook page, and I've got the uh, radio station's Facebook page and website. I have a podcast on the uh, radio station that you can link to through our website called Stacks of Wax. We generally cover a, a right now because I haven't been doing it that long. I have just covered broad uh, topics like blues or architects of rock and you know that kind of thing. But uh, there's uh, at least ten. Mm-hmm. good episodes up and uh i've been lucky enough to get some semi-famous people you know uh peter rivera uh the drummer uh for a famous band i can't remember <laughs> see it happens to everybody it uh, happens to everybody anyway so uh, uh, yeah it's hard to, if you just google my name stuff comes up Perfect. Perfect. That's that's what we, we like to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for being on, Johnny. And hopefully you can come back on sometime in the future. I'd we love have, to. And now you've got to come and be on my thing now. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. I uh, Amy was on. Amy Hart with, was on with us last week and she was talking about how she had done Laurel Canyon. Yeah. And I was like, I, sh- I want to do Laurel Canyon. Yeah. Like I should have been on. She was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> Laurel Canyon's my thing. So thank you guys for being with us today. A special thanks to TV Head Jimmy for scoring original music at the top of the show. Reach out to TV Head Jimmy on Instagram for all of your production needs, music and otherwise, at Intelligence Noir on Instagram. If you have a record that you'd like to bring to the turntable, you can email us at recordsonrepeatpod at gmail.com. If you like what you're hearing, please make sure to give us a rating and a five-star review anywhere you get your podcast and tell all of your music-loving friends about us. We are pretty neat. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Records on Repeat Pod and join our Facebook group. We're talking all things music and all things the Stones after the show. You will not want to miss it. Sources for today's episode were Wikipedia Music, a 2018 Heat Rocks podcast episode 53, and a 2010 documentary called Stones in Exile that you can find on YouTube. Join us next week. We're going to have folk singer-songwriter Tennessee Tuckness on the show talking all things the Belladonna goddess herself. If you know, you know. We'll see you on the B-side, guys.